Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Nice to see you all here. Uh, I'm going to be the moderator of uh, this evening institute talk. Um, and uh, let me introduce myself first. Uh, I'm Nelida Fukaro and I'm an historian of the modern Middle East, uh, teaching here at NYU Abu Dhabi. And for years I've worked on the urban history of this region. So that is the connection with the book uh, that we are going to discuss today. Uh, this evening, uh, um, we're going to have a mix of uh, presentations by the two authors, Roberto Fabri and uh, Sultan Saud al-Qasimi. Uh, but also, we are going to have a conversation and followed by, by the Q&A. Um, the title of this session is Urban Modernity in the Contemporary Gulf, uh, Obsolescence and Opportunities. And this is the title of the book uh, uh, edited by uh, Roberto Fabri and Sultan Saud al-Qasimi, which was published by Routledge uh, in 2022. So it's basically just uh, fresh out of the press. Um, let me introduce, uh, uh, first of all, the uh, two speakers, uh, the two editors, uh, shall I say, as well. Uh, first of all, let me introduce Roberto Fabri, who is an architect, a researcher, and associate professor at Zayed University. As a former UNDP consultant, he participated to the rehabilitation of several concrete buildings in Kuwait, including the Kuwait National Museum at the former American Mission Hospital. His academic research revolves around the notion of narrative spaces and include different forms of heritage and museum building. Heritage being obviously, as we shall see later on, a very important theme um, of this book. And Roberto has primarily worked uh, on a non-Western context. Roberto is also part uh, of the newly founded UA chapter of the documentation and conservation of the building of the modern movements uh, and a member of the UAE Modern Heritage Technical Committee. He co-authored the double volume Modern Architecture in Kuwait in 1949-1989 uh, and also he edited and I guess authored as well an article uh, in the history of post-war architecture journal, uh, a special issue called Impatient Cities of the Gulf. Uh, and of course, uh, alongside uh, with Sultan al-Qasimi, uh, he has edited the book that we are going to discuss this evening. I actually met Roberto years ago uh, in Kuwait when he was doing uh, his work on uh, Kuwaiti uh, architecture. Um, Sultan Saud al-Qasimi perhaps does not need much introduction, but I'll do uh, <laughs> what I can uh, this evening. Uh, Sultan is an Emirati columnist and researcher on social, political, and cultural affairs in the Arab Gulf states. He's also the founder of the Barjil Art Foundation, an independent initiative established in 2010. Um, hi, Sultan. I see he's uh, joined us from Berlin. 
um, to contribute to the intellectual development of the art scene in the Arab region. He has taught uh, politics of, the modern, of modern Middle Eastern art uh, at, New, at New York University, at Yale, Georgetown, and Boston College, uh, the American University of Paris, Columbia University, and currently at, at Bard College in Berlin. Sultan is also currently a fellow at the Wissenschaftskolleg zu Berlin, the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin, and it is from here that is going to join our conversation. Welcome, Sultan. Now, um, I will uh, uh, leave the platform to uh, Sultan, uh, who's uh, in, going to briefly introduce uh, the book and the work they've done on the book. Thank you very much uh, for the uh, kind introduction. I, uh, I wish I was there with you. I can see that uh, the room has uh, some familiar faces. And it's always good to be speaking with my colleague and dear friend, uh, Roberto Fabri. Um, I'll give you a brief overview of uh, this book that uh, Roberto, in fact, uh, invited me to uh, co-edit with him um, about 2018. Uh, we initially started working on this book. And uh, the book really was a, uh, a culmination of uh, a number of meetings uh, that Roberto Fabri and I had. Uh, in, uh, in Kuwait and elsewhere, talking about the importance of documenting uh, modern architecture in the Gulf region, but also uh, through the eyes and the lenses of uh, professionals and experts uh, and witnesses to, to this change, which is why I think this book is quite fascinating. And before I move to the next slide, I just want to draw your attention to this building that uh, features on the cover of the book, because I will reference this structure uh, coming up in, in a few slides. Um, the book is divided really into uh, three major parts. Um, one part is almost sort of looking back at what's been published and what's been written and how modern architectural uh, heritage um, was developed in the, uh, in, in the Gulf region. Uh, the second part we're looking at um, the, uh, the international expertise that has played a role in, uh, in planning and developing these, uh, these cities, but also looking at the local expertise and links, which is something I think that is uh, still understudied. So we, we, we look at it in more than one chapter, but it is another topic I think that's worth plenty of discussion. Um, and finally, we look at the idea of, uh, of heritage, because Modern architecture is more than just the concrete buildings that have uh, that were developed in the Gulf in the mid 20th century. There's so much that goes into this that I think that it's worth expanding the understanding of what uh, heritage uh, is. We were lucky enough to be hosted uh, in the last uh, Gulf research meeting uh, in 2019, of course, before the pandemic. And as you can see, we have um, had a, a number of interesting speakers from various uh, ages, younger, older, uh, more established, and also uh, novices to the, uh, to the field. Now, I, I told you to think about the first building that's on the cover. By the way, that photo was taken by, by Roberto Fabri, and that is not me on the cover. Everyone keeps asking me if that was the case. Uh, but I, the reason I draw your attention to that building is that building was designed by a, a British firm uh, called uh, the Design Construction Firm. Well, British really is, uh, it was founded by two Brits, but it was based in Beirut. 
in Lebanon, in the Middle East. It was founded there in the 1950s by Irving and Jones, two British architects, but it employed dozens of Arab and Middle Eastern architects. It was based in the Middle East. It worked in the Middle East. And, uh, and this is one of their structures that they designed in Sharjah, a building that no longer exists, uh, that was the former headquarters of Crescent Petroleum. And uh, this, this, I think, is an ideal uh, way to think about the book, because when, when you speak to someone and you say this firm was founded by two architects, uh, the first instinct is to think of them as a Western firm. But in reality, this firm that spent over 25 years in the Gulf, uh, in the Gulf region, in the Middle East, designing projects in Lebanon, in, uh, uh, in Qatar, in the Emirates, uh, and, and elsewhere, this is very much a, a Middle Eastern company, which I think is, is very important to think when you think about the issue of authorship and whether this, these are Western companies or Middle Eastern companies or local companies that have designed these, uh, these firms. Um, and I also want to draw your attention to another project that we speak about uh, in this book, which I'm very uh, also attached, uh, attached to because this is a, uh, an airport that was constructed in, uh, in Sharjah in the early 20th century, I think in the 1920s or so. And as you can see on the right side of this image, you see uh, corals, unfortunately, but also mud brick, uh, wood, uh, and, and maybe what some people refer to as rudimentary uh, uh, raw materials. But also when you look at this building, you see that the building includes modern equipment. It was an airport, so there was electronic devices, but you also see glass, aluminum, concrete, cement, um, and steel. Uh, and so this really is an example of a structure that, that defies the idea of what modern architecture is in the Gulf. Modern architecture, uh, for most of us, we think of as architecture of the 1950s and 60s, but this takes you back a generation earlier and it still exists today. And we feature this in one of the essays in the book. Now, I'm very proud of our book. I think we did a, a decent job, but in reality, there was a lot missing in our book. And I think it's important to be humble and to recognize what we missed out on. And I believe that a country as diverse and rich architecturally uh, as Oman is one of our uh, sort of more glaring uh, 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 missings of, from the book. So you're looking at here uh, a structure on the right that was designed by uh, John Harris, who is a name that is familiar to a lot of us who have uh, you know, lived in the UAE, uh, the person behind the Dubai master plan as uh, Todris has written uh, uh, in a book recently. So, so I think that Oman, for example, and uh, is, is something that is very much that we missed, uh, but we recognize that we missed it. And I think this is an opportunity for many other researchers to look at uh, the Gulf region. Um, but I want to say as well that a lot of young uh, uh, scholars or young uh, uh, individuals in the Gulf have started initiatives looking at modern architecture, and they're not necessarily professional experts or scholars and academics. These are individuals who love modern architecture, and they're playing an important role. And this is something else that is, needs to be reflected. Since the publishing of the book, Saudi Arabia has played host to a major uh, Islamic arts biennial that's ongoing. And I think this is an, a prime example of the structures that we talk about in the book, a, uh, the King Abdul Aziz International Airport, 
uh, in Jeddah uh, that was designed in the late 70s uh, and been repurposed uh, today into an art space. Uh, and I think that this is a uh, an example of a structure that was repurposed, but in a very intelligent way, safeguarding the original structure, but also giving the building uh, uh, another life and another purpose. Uh, and I think expanding the audience of this uh, building that was really, in many ways, only accessible to Muslim immigrants. And now you have people from various faiths uh, who can visit and enjoy this structure. I think that it's also important to think about other sources of documentation. Yes, scholars and professionals are very important, but myself, somebody who's interested in modern art, I think it's important to look at uh, uh, artists as also sources of documentation. Here you see a Saudi artist based in the Eastern province, uh, Abdurrahman uh, Suleiman, uh, documenting through his photographs, but also, also through his paintings, um, images of modern architecture and also destruction of modern architecture, as you can see in the bottom right. Uh, the painting, of course, the title is Al-Atlal, and many of you who understand Arabic know the significance of that word in the Arabic language. I won't stop at this work, but this is the uh, painting very briefly of Saudi artist Safiya bin Zagar looking at Al-Balad, which is the historic district of Jeddah, and the UAE's very own Abdul Qadir al-Rayyas throughout the 1980s talking about um, modern uh, structures, early modern structures, and also giving them very powerful names, like the, the title of the work on the left, Decay, which, which I feel for him is a reference to obsolescence, a reference to neglect of some of these uh, structures. Um, artists like uh, Brahim Ismail, who have documented modern structures in Kuwait that today are really under threat. Uh, and we've seen this very structure that I'm about to show you the next slide that was um, a, uh, that was uh, uh, that experienced a fire uh, just uh, a year or two ago. Uh, and I and I think once again that even going back a few decades, you find images of the original shape of that building through uh, the uh, the paintbrush of artists and and photographers. Um, I also want to say finally um, that. In addition to artists, in addition to bloggers, in addition to um, uh, to young writers, we see in the Gulf the emergence of a new genre uh, of uh, architectural documentation. And this is a movie called Beit Abui, uh, which won an award, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of years ago. Again, showing you beautiful architectural monuments. The movie is short, but very, very moving about a, an opportunity that a family had uh, where they would, uh, they would uh, destroy their home and turn it into a, a, a coffee shop. And we've seen these, uh, these instances plenty times in the Gulf. Um, and so finally, I want to show you that even in the Arabic press, it's not only in the English language or the English speaking world in the Gulf, but even in the Arabic language world, you see people writing articles wanting to uh, conserve modern architectural heritage of the Gulf. Here you see a Saudi uh, a writer and on the right, a poet uh, thinking about the importance of preserving modern architecture, which is something we try to do uh, in our book. Thank you.
Okay, good evening everyone and thank you for having me here today. Thanks to the NYU Institute for making this event possible, NACHED for coordination and Nalida for being us with us tonight and thank you all for coming. So in continuation with Sultan's presentation, my talk today will try to offer some points of reflection on the book's themes and some visual content taken from the chapters. One of the main constraints that we had during the preparation of the publication was the limited number of images allowed by the format. I guess there were 64, 65. So together with the other contributors, uh, we had to pick and choose carefully each image to complement the chapter's narrative. So today is also an opportunity to highlight the uh, part of the visual content of the book um, and also those images that didn't make it to the page and contextually to extract a few topics and common threads that hopefully will foster the debate at the end of our presentations. So you have seen this already, this is our book cover, and I still think that this could be Sultan, because I didn't, I didn't meet you when I took this shot. <laughs> All right, so um, it has to be mentioned that the book includes uh, an article, a great introduction by Kishwar Rishvi from Yale University that cleverly titled um, Forms of Engagement. Uh, and four uh, en endorsements by Nasser Rabat, Amel Andraus, Pascal Menoré, who was a former here at NYUAD, and Ashra Salama. Um, the book intentions revolve around the four terms in the title, which are in apparent opposition. Modernity, contemporaneity, obsolescence, opportunities. In other words, we wanted to read the legacy of the modernization project in today's Gulf cities. And also we wanted to read the potential of these obsolete structures for the future of the urban fabrics in the region. So when Sultan and I started this project, our attention was caught by a series of initiatives pointing towards the preservation of modernist architecture in the GCC. It was 2018, Sultan was working on building Sharjah. I was almost finished. I finished the other books on Kuwait. And we read the news about Dubai's municipality's intention to protect a few selected buildings from the 1970s, namely John Harry's World Trade Center, Jafar Tukan's prototype kindergarten, the clock towers, roundabout, and others. It was one of the rare occasions in which the word modern and the word heritage were pronounced in the same sentence in an official governmental statement. In the last decade, new tangible interest for those artifacts has grown stronger, as demonstrated by a variety of new studies and initiatives, scholarly research, publication, in addition to students' work, as well as exhibitions, artist work, public debates, and a few placemaking campaigns, demonstrate a rising and compelling need to, to re-engage with the concrete city of the 1960s and 70s. In this sense, it's indicative that the new Qatar National Museum was inaugurated in March 2018, showcasing a temporary exhibit titled Making Doha 1950-2030, that put in perspective the recent architectural successes of the country, such as the, the museum itself, along with the early modern structure of the post-oil discovery era. 
The book stems from our common interest in those topics, but also is not a retrospective. We wanted to avoid nostalgic and idealized memories of the past on the one hand, and to advocate for preservation on the other. We have started studying the architecture of the Gulf 13 years ago, and during the past decade, we, um, so many buildings from the modernization era have been demolished because they were deemed not sufficiently authentic, um, because they were considered obsolete, or simply because they existed in, certain, in central plots that were very attractive to real estate developers. The book also reflects on a third way, uh, called museumification, or the transformation of an old container into a cultural center or an exhibition venue. This solution is a usual practice for ancient buildings, and it does preserve the heritage in danger. But the number of museums in one city is limited, and the structure from this period are high in numbers. Two examples here in the slide. On your left, Doha uh, Fire Station, or, quote, Doha Lidi Contemporary Art Space. And on your right side, Sharjah Flying Saucer, a space-age restaurant from 1978 acquired by Sharjah Foundation and later transformed into a cultural hub and reopened in 2020. There are the other examples in the region, like the terminal that we've seen before, the Arch Terminal. Another example could be Manama's Custom House, which is the protagonist of another chapter in the book and is also a cultural center now, but in between it was a post office. So in this framework, the book reflects on what can be a foreseeable future for the modern heritage in the Gulf, advocating for preservation as an answer to a number of specific issues um, of the contemporary urban environment, locally and globally, that I'm briefly going to discuss here in the following slides. Preservation reduces the urban sprawl and the land cons uh, consumption. The State of the Arab Cities report here in the slides by UN Habitat, UNDP, and the Bahraini Center for Strategic International Energy Studies is considered one of the most comprehensive snapshots that assesses the status of urbanization in the Arab region. The analysis is conducted in alignment with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, in particular Goal 11, which assesses the impact of overpopulation in urban centers. In this sense, in 2020, rep uh, the 2020 report shows concern for the continued expansion of the Arab city's footprint due to urban drift and migration dynamics. These two factors are predicted to bring two-thirds of the population living in cities by the middle of this century. The Gulf is already leading the regional ranking with 80% of the population in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and UAE living in urban areas, and the figure rising up to 98 in Kuwait and 99 in Qatar. Preservation reduces also the ecological footprint generated by the demolition activities and the rubbles that to be disposed in landfills. It has been recently calculated that 8% of the total CO2 glo emission globally is for the production of new construction materials such as steel, bricks, and concrete. Gulf cities 
should reconsider the already existing building stock, which in, on many occasions is either obsolete, underused, or abandoned, as an opportunity to local, for localized intervention and participative efforts to bridge urban divides and stitch a discontinuous urban fabric. The act of preserving and reimagining a new life for an old part of the city is not only a more efficient and ecological practice, but also represent the continuation of a, the cultural experiences through the preservation of memories. A culture of reuse, especially in a highly consumeristic site, much like the Gulf, cannot be achieved overnight. It can only be built by an accumulative process made of studies, debates, and conferences, artists' work, public awareness campaign, training of young professionals, state-led plans, and bottom-up initiatives, as we try to showcase in our book. As the Gulf City is in constant transformation, 20th century structure rapidly become outmoded, and that has led to a marginalization of these areas. In many occasions, these places are opportunities of informal gatherings for other citizenships. Reflecting on abandoned or underused parts of the city, as well as industrial zones and outdated commercial areas, the book investigates liminal spaces as a product of the modernization and as a possible arena of opportunities to make the contemporary city more just. So with this in mind, the book presents 13 episodes of modernity in the contemporary city, attempting a work in progress, cross-country definition of what can be considered the modern heritage for the Gulf and what role this building stock plays or could play in today's urban strategy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, both speakers. This has, uh, uh, has given us a sense of, uh, of the publication, of the ideas behind it. Um, and, you know, in many respects, the urban fabric that was produced uh, during the modernization era had long been forgotten uh, before uh, academics and practitioners like yourselves had started, to, started working on it. Um, what I actually do like about this uh, uh, book and the two talks that you, we get a really a clear sense that this book is also being put together thinking about a future research uh, and active agenda. Uh, so, uh, as in a sense, both of you said, you know, there is much more to be done. There have been, there are clear omissions uh, and so forth. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't cover everything. Um, I guess uh, one of the argument uh, uh, of the book, uh, I, I guess, uh, of, of the publication is the, the modernist architecture as the potential to narrate uh, uh, to us, uh, to us contemporary viewers, uh, social growth, and all series of uh, uh, cultural, social, and political dynamics. But above all, uh, citizens' memories uh, 
of the past across the region. So there is this big theme of memory in this book that is very important, which brings me to the issue of heritage that actually occupies, uh, I think, part three of, uh, um, of the edited volume. Um, now, um, of course, uh, you know, let me start with a brief reflection on the book's title, which I found intriguing at the beginning, this whole idea of obsolescence and uh, opportunity and this idea of uh, being obsolete as uh, um, Sultan was saying being neglected in decay but also being some somehow of no of no use or I think out of fashion outmoded and so forth and and it's a very kind of intriguing way of start discussing this whole idea of uh, of, um, uh, of heritage. Now, I want to push both of you a bit more on, uh, on the idea of uh, um, 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 uh, this modernist architecture has heritage and the, and the kind of meaning of heritage in this context that you think uh, this architecture, if used uh, uh, in appropriate way and through the development of a culture of reuse, which is obviously very important in this part of the world as elsewhere, I just want to push you a bit, a bit on this idea of, of, uh, of heritage as historical memories, a symbol of what? Would you like me to answer that? Well, whoever wants you to. You start. Well, I think that uh, heritage in the Gulf is very much alive. Uh, in the Gulf, you see people who still wear uh, the traditional clothes, the uh, thobe, the tishtasha, the kandora. The women still wear the abaya. Uh, the Gulf states have been very much attached to their heritage. We still greet each other in our own way. We still, um, we still carry on traditions. Uh, even in the 21st century, I think in the UAE and the other Gulf states, we are some of the most advanced countries in terms of adopting technology. But at the same time, we're very much attached to our heritage, our national identity. And so I think that this seeps not only into our colloquial, daily um, spoken uh, culture, but also into our heritage. We very much value the, the, the buildings that were constructed in the early 20th century. But something happens in the mid 20th century where for some reason or the other, we felt, uh, I think, especially towards the late 90s and 2000s, that these buildings were of less value because they were not authentic enough. But I feel that there is a revival now in individuals who believe that uh, uh, structures that were built in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s are part and parcel of our identity. You see them featured in our currency, in our stamps, even in our daily uh, sometimes um, uh, discussions. People refer to the Trade Center in Dubai and they refer to uh, you know, the Cultural Foundation in Abu Dhabi. This has become part of our uh, day, uh, you know, the, day, the daily uh, interactions with the city. And so, um, yes, heritage can take a different Meaning, I think, in the Gulf, especially when you consider how attached we are to our uh, to our own heritage. Thank you, thank you very much. Let me just, uh, yes, I mean, I. I, I I totally agree with you. Of, of course, heritage is very important, but I think 
uh, in some ways, uh, and I know you are fully aware because you said it, that you are actually started starting to add to what was considered to be traditionally heritage because I'm a scholar of, the, of, of oil in the Gulf. And in some ways, you know, um, recently it has changed, but somehow the pre-oil era uh, was the kind of the center stage uh, of uh, what was considered heritage. And you guys are starting, obviously, a new phase that uh, it, it seems to me very, very important here. Uh, so this idea of uh, uh, the modern, uh, the early modern, uh, uh, architecturally and otherwise, uh, as part of the heritage uh, of this part of the world and of this nation. Um, Roberto, sorry. Oh, just just one, one, one reflection on, on following what Sultan was saying. And um, um, the Gulf is not unique in, in this. The Gulf belongs to planet Earth and is pretty much following the same dynamics that happened before. Um, in, not before, but contextually in other parts of the world. Um, the concrete architecture is the misfit of architecture everywhere. Uh, before moving <laughs> in the Gulf, I was trying to, with other colleagues, young, you know, dreamy graduate from the School of Architecture, to preserve a, a modern building in my hometown in, in Italy from Gioponti, which is a famous architect from the 50s and, and before. Um, but nobody pay attention to that building. Nobody find value in that. The uh, Heritage Authority, which in Italy is an institution, I mean, it's, it's, it's big, um, the, the, the officers there, they were struggling finding uh, interest in this kind of structure because it was not in their format. Okay, there's, there's, there must be another castle, there must be another church to be taken care of before taking care of this concrete building. Um, so all of a sudden, in, in early 2000, there's been, because um, there was a threat to demolish Le Corbusier building in France. Mm. So all of a sudden, all the architects in the world start saying, no, you don't touch, you don't touch Le Corbusier because it's, 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 it's impossible to demolish a building. From so that somehow, because of the authorship of this building, they started a, 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 um, a movement, let's say, to, to protect this building or start restarting this building. And there's no problem in protecting a, a building from Le Corbusier. Everybody is happy with that. But when it comes to Tony Irving and Gordon Jones, for example, which is the building Sultan was talking about, which is are unknown by the majority of people, there is where you don't find interest, you don't find research, you don't find money to research and to preserve this building. Uh, so the dynamic we're seeing now in the Gulf is going towards this direction. It's, it's um, scholars, but people uh, are way more aware of the importance of this building. Not necessarily because they are a famous piece of architecture, but because they are part of a transition that transform the built environment, but also the society in, in, uh, after the discovery of the oil. Thank you. You've uh, pronounced, you said the magic word, uh, authorship, that I wanted Ooh. to mention now <laughs> as my second point to, to both uh, um, guests here. Um, now, 
I mean, the whole idea, we are talking about architecture, but we are also talking about cities and urban environment, urban lives and urban residents and so forth. So architecture, in a sense, is part of uh, a much broader mosaic of things and activities that make up the city. Um, and, uh, you know, you can think about practitioners of, of, this, of different types being involved uh, in the production of buildings, but also in the production of cities. So architects are one, um, builders, urban planners, technicians, and so forth. So in a sense, uh, the production of architecture requires quite a lot of technical knowledge and the production of the city um, um, for that matter and expertise. So, and I think Sultan, in your uh, in your presentation, you mentioned uh, uh, the issue of authorship. Uh, um, you know, you mentioned a uh, um, British firm established uh, in Be in Beirut, uh, but with a lot of uh, uh, Middle Eastern employees, architects, uh, um, and so forth. Um, now, I am wondering. Uh, this debate is obviously fascinating, and uh, uh, you know, just to broaden it out, is actually not a debate that uh, is very much uh, um, happening here in the Gulf, but everywhere, uh, about this idea of uh, uh, the contemporary city, right? Or what is this contemporary city? Is local, imported, is Western, or what? Uh, and Particularly in this part of the world, I have to say, uh, it's obviously a very important debate. Um, so there is this big issue of Gulf architecture and Gulf uh, urban making in relation to the issue of uh, um, Western expertise versus Eastern expertise. Uh, now, I mean, I, I'm wondering, is this kind of East-West reasoning correct, the way to go about it? Or perhaps the, there is something different that we could uh, uh, think about. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it to you. <laughs> if I may, uh, I don't think it's a matter of verses. I think mm. it's a matter of act. It's a matter of... Right. Uh, is the, these are uh, Arab uh, architects who studied in Europe, who studied in uh, North America, who came back and worked. These are Western companies who came to the Middle East, who hired Arabs, who worked in the Middle East. And so I don't think it's a matter of this is a structure that's, you know, this is a West and this is East and there's, a, and there's an ocean of difference between them. Many of them have interacted with the same structures Many of them have interacted with the same, um, uh, the same professors. Uh, and I think uh, the idea of the globalization of knowledge goes back earlier than the 21st mm -hmm. century. It's not the product of uh, the internet age, uh, uh, the democratization of knowledge. I think that many, uh, many individuals work together, as our chapter on Qatar talks about. Uh, many individuals um, clashed and changed. And then you really can't assign a single authorship to a, a giant structure or a giant city. And I always think of the example of uh, Halpro. Well, Halpro is a giant British company that was founded, uh, uh, I think, in the 19th century. And uh, if they uh, laid the master plan of Sharjah, 
Who is Hal Crow? Is there a Mr. Hal Crow? Who's the person who designed the, the master plan? So it's most likely a, um, an amalgamation of more than one uh, uh, architect and more than one urban uh, professional. And even in the city of Abu Dhabi, when you think of Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi has at least two or three different master plans that all came together and worked together. And by the way, one of them was Western, one of them was uh, uh, East, East Asian, Japanese, and one of them was Egyptian. And so you're looking at uh, people from three different continents who come together and put the city of Abu Dhabi really under the leadership and under the uh, uh, auspices of the ruler of Abu Dhabi, uh, of uh, our late uh, uh, President Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Zayed, uh, Allah Rahman. So, so it's very important to know that these are all individuals who interacted together. So it wasn't one versus the other. Otherwise, nothing will work. I, I totally agree with you. I'm, I mean, perhaps I, I did not uh, explain myself uh, correctly. But I still think, though, that this idea of heritage, going back to, uh, you know, the, the discussion we had before, um, somehow implies an idea of authenticity and therefore, going back to the question of authorship, uh, is, is a tricky issue, actually. And I mean, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's something that, you know, we've been, I have been discussing in this region um, in different contexts for a long time, this issue. And that's why I think it's so, imp it's so interesting um, uh, in, in relation to the, 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 your topic of study, this modernist architecture. Um, um, Roberto. Yeah, I was thinking um, about um, um, a map that we did for, uh, not for this book, for, for the book on Kuwait. And I think uh, third, fourth page, there's, there's a spread that shows a map that has more or less Kuwait in the center. And there are um, the rest of the world around, and there are trajectories of architects and firms and, and practices that came to work to Kuwait in the time span that we were analyzing in that book. Um, and um, and it's, 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 it's interesting because you see line, they are converging to this little, very little patch of land in, 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 the, in the representation of the, of the globe. And you have trajectories coming from, from all over the world because in 50 years there have been firms attract to uh, to work there uh, from literally from all over the world. Um, and also, it's probably wrong to think this dichotomy East and West because there's no one West. There's no one East and there's no one West. I mean, hiring a Japanese urban planner and, and, and an American corporate firm is not the same thing. You don't have the same result at the end. You don't have the same interaction with these experts that Sheikh Zayed uh, hired at that time. It's an example, but there's plenty of them. So the decision of going with one um, planner or another planner with a consultant, another consultant, a contractor or another contractor changed completely the final result. Mm, um, and as you're right, there's more to talk about that, but there's the tendency lately in like giving passports to ideas, giving passport to buildings, which is in, 
impossible and it's stupid in its essence. I mean, is the Burj Khalifa a local building? Of course it is, but is the steel that built the Burj Khalifa local? Of course it's not. Um, the expertise, the, the author of the Burj Khalifa, I bet a thousand people have worked in, in drawing the, 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 the technical details for that construction. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you have 10,000 people from any nationalities that came to build it, to make it happen. So who's the father of, or the mother of that, of that building at the end? No? Um, but there's a tendency lately, in, especially in academia, to go after these narratives and trying to, you know, to, to define that something is local if it is somehow attached to a local person or, or local designer. Or, or a, I don't know if you agree with me, Sultan. Sultan. I, I, see. I, I, I actually want to add a point. When we were doing research for building Sharjah, uh, we came across two buildings, Nalida, that uh, we have a record, a document from the municipality, signed, stamped, uh, you know, official document stating that the name of the architect of this building is such and such. Okay, so this is fine. We could have taken that paper and ran with it. We would have been fine. However, after doing uh, oral interviews with, uh, with the owners of the building, we found out that in the 1970s, when the UAE was very, very young, there was a lot of architectural companies that didn't care to open offices in the Emirates because there, were, there wasn't that much work. So what they did, Narida, was that they hired architects of record in the UAE. So this building was, uh, was on the record uh, attributed to a local architectural company. However, the original architect was based in Beirut or based in Cairo. Mm. These are actual examples in the book. So it's very important not to take things at face value. And even if you have a document, it's important to investigate uh, behind the scenes of a certain building, which is, I think, something that comes up in, uh, in this book as well. Yes, it's fascinating, particularly that, that particular period, the 60s and the 70s, and the plot thickens, you know, we are like detectives trying to connect all this, uh, uh, these threads. Uh, uh, you got anything to add to this, Roberto? No, no, so I'm, 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 I'm aware of time and I could continue to ask questions and have conversations with both Roberto and Sultan forever, but I leave the floor for questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.